0: Back when I was a youth pastor, I took a group of youth with me on a mission trip to Zambia. Pastor John at the time was 17. He was actually one of those kids. Well, for some reason, one day, me, my leaders, and the missionaries were headed out, and so I decided I'd take John along with me. Somewhere on the stops we made, there was an opportunity to to buy African-made chocolate bars for each of the team, and so I bought one for each of the youth. We got back to where we were staying. I I told John we were going to have some fun. I asked him to assemble the team into the meeting room and then come and get me. He eat it as he was told, and soon they were all asem- assembled. I waited a few minutes, and then I stormed into the room. I told them I knew what they had done, and we weren't leaving that room until someone owned it. I told them I wasn't dumb, that, they, that someone just needed to fess up. I mean, we were on a mission trip. Did they really think they were going to get away with it? I chastised them. On and on I went, insisting that whoever did it, own it. And then I went silent. The kids were confused. They were looking at each other. You could cut the tension with an eye. The youth started encouraging each other to confess to whatever it was that I must be speaking of. I let it go for a few minutes until one particular youth looked like he was about to crack and confessed to something I didn't know anything about and perhaps didn't want to know. And then I opened the bag where the chocolate bars were and I started tossing them at them. They all were expecting some sort of punishment and they ended up with A reward. Well, in the passage we come to today, we find that when you and I were headed for judgment and punishment, God intervened. If you would take your Bibles and turn back with me to the book of Ephesians, this time chapter 2, as we continue in our study there. As, you're to remember, as you turn there, you remember the last week, we were back in chapter 1, and, and there, after reminding the Ephesians of all that God had done for them, God the Father in choosing them, God the Son in redeeming them, and God the Holy Spirit in sealing them, that after reminding them of that, the Apostle Paul had erupted in a prayer of praise to God. Paul, he first prayed that their faith, and praised God for their faith and love in his prayer, a faith that was living and active and was being demonstrated in their love and commitment to one another. Paul then went on to pray that they would know God better, that they would not just grow in a knowledge of Him and just know more about Him, but they would grow in their relationship with Him, and that God would open their eyes, give them better spiritual vision, that they may know a couple things, that they might know the hope that they have, a hope that isn't wishful thinking, but instead is rooted in what God had done and and choosing them in the past, a hope of heaven, a hope of eternity with their Savior and friend in glory, hope that makes this life only a temporary one that we're just passing through. And Paul then prayed that he might open their eyes, that God might open their eyes so that they may also know the riches of God's inheritance in the saints. He wanted them to understand that of all the wonders God has made, of all the joys in his life that God considers those that are in Christ, those that have been joined to him and are saved the most valuable. Still there was more, and so Paul went on to pray that they might know the power of that is given them in Christ, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, a power that was able to empower them so that they could face any temptation that might come and prevail, any hardship in life that they may have to face and they could still have hope through it and they could endure any persecution and still be more than conquerors. Uh, It's probably as Paul thought about all that and specifically Jesus' resurrection that Paul was reminded that it was the same power that raised Jesus that saved us. And so he launches into the section we come today. If you would, you can follow along as I read, starting in verse 1, Ephesians chapter 2. Paul writes this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, and the passions of our flesh, And raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, of all the passages in Scripture, I'm not sure you could find a passage that better explains salvation than this one. After all, if you've ever wondered whether salvation is really necessary, whether Jesus really needed to die, or whether you really need to believe in and to be saved, Paul answers it here. In fact, in these 10 verses, Paul tells us why we need to be saved, how we are saved, and what we are saved for. So notice first, Paul starts by telling us why we needed to be saved telling us that apart from Christ, we were dead. That without Christ, we are nothing but spiritually dead. Today, many people assume that most people, saved or unsaved, are basically good. That they're doing well and are okay on their own. In medical terms, they would even go so far as to say that they're healthy, as opposed to not being sick or dead. Sure, many would admit that human nature isn't as healthy as it might be someday, but we live in an evolving world, they say, and think that one day it will be better than it is and we'll get there. After all, these things take time. True, sure, in past centuries we've had things like wars and starvation and economic hardship, but people have survived and the world is getting better, they think. Most are basically good. At, at worst, people aren't just, just aren't quite perfect, they think. But if that is true, doesn't one have to wonder why things aren't better than they are? I mean, shouldn't some of these things like starvation and wars have been eliminated by now? Still, so others, they recognize that challenge. And so they think, well, man is not well. He's sick, maybe even mortally sick, but there is still hope. He's not hopeless. No, they maintain if there's life, there's hope. They, they too believe that man is more or less good. If, if we just believed in ourselves, we could be better. But here's the thing. well, many of the people believe one of those two views, neither view could be further from what Paul writes here. After all, Paul starts this section out by saying that we weren't mostly well or sick, but had hope. But by saying that before Christ, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. And Paul wasn't just describing some degrading segment of society or some cannibalistic tribe somewhere. It wasn't just that those in Ephesus and Asia Minor were particularly decrepit because he goes on to say that we all lived among them. In other words, Paul is saying that everyone from the top to the bottom, from the worst criminal to the most religious person without Christ, is dead. Puzzling, isn't it? After all, so many around us seem to be very much alive. Their bodies are strong. They have active intellects. They have, they're brimming with personality. They even do amazing things. They, they make wonderful pieces of art, design amazing buildings, play sports exceptionally well. And beyond that, there seems to be decency and goodness in many people. Truthfully, some unbelievers I know are among the nicest people I know, and yet Paul here is clear that all that are without Christ are nothing but dead, that all their goodness is temporary and meaningless without God, because in the area that matters most, in their soul, they have no life. You see, it says that their soul is dead to the Holy Spirit, is as dead to the Holy Spirit as a corpse. They have no love for God, no awareness of His presence, no longing for fellowship with His people. They are as unresponsive to him as a corpse. Paul here is telling us that anyone without God, regardless of how physically fit or mentally alert they may be, is nothing but a walking dead man. Even the best of them are no different than the Pharisees that Jesus said were like whitewashed tombs that were freshly painted on the outside, that looked good, that looked righteous, that looked like they were good people, but on the inside were full of nothing but dead bones. Paul couldn't be more blunt before... Christ, you and I, we weren't morally good. We were not neutral. We weren't sick and in danger of death. We weren't mostly dead. He says we were totally dead. And Paul wasn't using death as a figure of speech here. A zombie is a, a person who's died, but who's nevertheless up and walking around. To make matters worse, a zombie's body is not only dead, but it's decaying. For some, it's the most disgusting thing they can imagine. And yet, as one author put it, that is the picture Paul paints of the human condition before God. In their opposition to God, men and women are walking corpses. They are the living dead. Jeremy Bentham, he was a philosopher from the 1700s. He's considered the founder of utilitarianism, the belief that an action is right as long as it promotes happiness, and the happiness of the greater good should be our guiding principle. Well, in Bentham's will, he apparently left a fortune to a London hospital. With one condition, Bentham was to be present at every board meeting. So reportedly for more than 100 years, the remains of Jeremy Bethham were wheeled into the boardroom every month and placed at the head of the table. The skeleton was dressed in 17th century garb and a little hat was put on his head. The minutes of every board meeting read, Mr. Jeremy Bentham present but not voting. Of course, he couldn't vote. He'd been dead since 1832. Well, that is the state we were before Christ. We were present but not voting. In fact, to drive home his point, Paul here, he describes what our lives were like before Christ, telling us that instead of following God, we were, we were following three evil forces. The first was the world, that we were following the course of the world. Noted, it was just what Paul's way of saying that all those that are unsaved that don't know Christ are controlled by the world's influences, affected by the values of the age, and end up adopting the habits and lifestyles of the culture around them, regardless of whether those values are opposed to God or not. That people, knowingly or unknowingly, are in bondage to the culture of the world, just drifting along in the stream of this world's idea of living. As one author put, the word world here expresses a whole social value system which is alien to God. It, it permeates, indeed dominates, non-Christian society and holds people in captivity. Wherever human beings are being dehumanized by political oppression or Bureaucratic tyranny by an outlook that is secular, that repudiates God, amoral, that repudiates absolute or materialistic, that glorifies in the consumer market. Wherever they are dominated by poverty or hunger or unemployment, by racial discrimination or by any form of injustice, there we can detect subhuman values. the subhuman values of this world. Its influence is pervasive. Well, here Paul says that like it or not, we were all caught up in it, following after the ways of the world influenced by it. But not only that, now Paul, he then goes on to add that without Christ we were fallen, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience. Now, Paul, he wasn't saying that all unbelievers are possessed by Satan, the, the prince of the power of the air here, but instead that they lived in a world darkened by Satan, in which Satan holds sway, where he is at work deceiving and blinding and misguiding mankind. And if that wasn't enough, to top it off, Paul then adds that we were captives to our fleshly desires. Over in Galatians 5, Paul writes, Now the work of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. In Romans 8, Paul goes on to outright tell us that such people cannot please God. You see, well, human beings may still have the image of God, and they can do some great things. The world is dominating them from from without. The the flesh is dominating them from within, and they're being dominated by the devil from beyond. Those are just the terrible dynamics of the state of spiritual death that they find themselves in. And when you thought that was bad enough, when you thought that couldn't get worse, like our spiritual state couldn't be more tragic, we find out that Paul has one more thing to say and goes on to remind them that before Christ, we were by nature children of wrath. Today, many people think that the God of the Old Testament was the God of wrath, and the God of the New Testament is more like Mr. Rogers. But while it is true that there are more than 20 words used to express God's wrath in the Old Testament, and more than 600 important passages deal with His wrath in the Old Testament, The New Testament, it also speaks of God's wrath, often using a term that means to grow ripe for something, indicating that God's wrath is gradually building. His opposition to sin is intensifying. The New Testament, tells us how God's wrath is active today, telling us that wherever the truth about God is rejected, it leads to a darkening of our understanding and a debasement of one's person. Things like sexual perversion, Romans 1 tells us, lies, envies, hatred, murder, strife, disobedience to parents, and other things. The New Testament also tells us how God's wrath will eventually be satisfied, telling us that a time will come when God will execute the full extent of his wrath and bring about a final judgment on our sin. In fact, Hebrew 10 tells us that it is a dreadful thing, a dreadful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. Well, Here Paul says that before we were in Christ, we were all included with those who were to be condemned on that day, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul couldn't have been more blunt before we were in Christ, our status was that of dead people awaiting judgment and wrath. And nothing that is dead can say to itself that it can cause itself to have life. We were without hope. After all, no one would approach Lazarus in that story I read before after he died and, and, he, and told him, Lazarus, you need to get up. Jesus has come. Lazarus, just come on now. Just come with me to Jesus. Jesus is here. He's wonderful. He can, he can help you. You just have to reach out to him and he'll do the rest. No, no, Lazarus was dead. A dead person can't will themselves to breathe. There is no self-help book that will help them work for them. A lifeless person can't do what we tell them to do, no matter how loudly and passionately we tell them to do it. As one person put it, you can play Reveille in the Arlington National Cemetery for a whole year, but you will not get any response from the dead soldiers there. No one will crawl out of their caskets. Oh, I can hear someone object. But, but Chad, we weren't that bad. Sure, maybe some of us, but not most of us. I mean, doesn't that seem a little harsh? Dead in sin? Awaiting wrath? Degraded? Servants of this world and the devil? Certainly not everyone was as degraded as Paul suggests. Aren't there many good and ethical people for whom that description just doesn't fit? I mean, I came to Christ when I was five. I mean, how evil could I really have been? But here, Paul, he's not denying the value of creation or that we were made in the image of God and as such can do amazing things. Instead, he's simply stating the fact that since God is the only source of spiritual life, since there's no life to be found anywhere else, those that are not connected to him are cut off from the source and sustainer of spiritual life and as a result are nothing but dead, unable to make a single move towards God, think a single accurate thought about God or even correctly respond to God on their own. Don't miss it. Before we were saved, we were spiritually dead. The Bible, God's Word, it made no sense to us, and if it did, it, we resented it. Our thinking was darkened. We mistook good for bad and called the bad good. The things of God were foolishness to us. We had no relationship with God. It didn't matter whether we were among those that we consider good or bad. We were just dead. Think of it this way. Think of it like an old school scale. Today we like to think that our good deeds are put on one side of the scale and our bad deeds are put on the other side of the scale. And as long as our good deeds that weigh our bad, we're okay. That God will accept us. But instead of picturing our good deeds on one side and our bad deeds on the other side, picture God setting his weight of perfection on one side and promising everyone who measures up to it, weighed up to it, he would give them eternal spiritual life. First person comes along and they're the least good among us, among the murderers of the world. When they put their weight on the scale, it, it doesn't budge. And then someone comes on who's done some good work, but, but their more substantial weight, it, it does, still doesn't do anything. It doesn't budge the scale. Finally, the most generous, benevolent person among us puts their weight on the scale. Still nothing. It doesn't do anything to the scale, because nothing can match the perfection. On the other side of it, the deeds, their deeds just can't tip the balance. And so they're left dead and still under the wrath of God. You see, the situation wasn't one in which you only needed to keep trying and you'd be okay. It wasn't a case of doing your best and you'd make it through. It, wasn't a, it was a case of you being able to do anything yourself. One person thought of it this way. Imagine a plane flies over the South Atlantic and crashes a thousand miles from any coast. In their play, and they're playing there are three individuals, a great Olympic swimmer, an average swimmer, and someone who can't swim at all. The Olympic star calls out, Follow me, I'll get you out of this, and takes off in an impressive crawl headed for the south tip of South America, a thousand miles away. The other two jump in after him. In about thirty seconds, the non-swimmer goes down. It takes about thirty minutes for the average swimmer to be deep sixth, but the champion swimmer turns away for twenty-five hours, covering an impressive fifty miles. He'll be there in 19 days if he doesn't slow down. No matter how good we are, the distance is just too far, and we are too flawed. We cannot, we can try, but all our works will be no more beneficial than rearranging the decks on the, the deck chairs on the Titanic. We were helpless. Well, let me ask you, is that how you see those that are apart from Jesus? Or have you into to lie that they're okay, things will work out for them? Looking back, is that how you, saw you see yourself pre-saved? Is that how you see your pre-saved self? Dear friends, until you realize how far you gone you were, how much help you needed, you'll never really appreciate the greatness of God's love and kindness shown to you. Nor will you have the urgency to share it with those that are still dead in their sins. So per- perhaps you're here or you're listening online and, and you don't know Christ. You don't believe. If so, let me be clear. Paul is describing you. You are dead. Destined to destruction. And on your own, there's nothing you can do about it. You're exactly where we all were, needing help. Now, fortunately for you, and for, for me, and for us, while well, our picture was bleak, the main point of this passage is that God won't stay out of the picture. Notice verse 4. Paul writes, but God. While you are dead and hopeless, but God. God. God acted. Which is the second thing we want to notice. That in Christ, God makes believers alive. That while we were sinners, God raises us to life in Christ. Look at the rest of verse 4 with me. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. God, he wasn't a passive onlooker to our salvation. He wasn't an angry huff waiting to be appeased. He wasn't willing to write us off and condemn us all, but instead deals with the wrath we deserve and shows mercy. George Whitfield, a famous evangelist of yesteryears, once said this, Come ye dead, Christless, unconverted sinners. Come and see the place where they laid the body of the deceased Lazarus. Behold him laid out, bound hand and foot with grave cloths, locked and stinking in a dark cave with a great stone placed on top of it. View him again and again. Go nearer to him. Be not afraid. Smell him. Ah, he, how he stinketh. Was he bound hand and foot with grave cloths? So art thou bound hand and foot with thy corruption. And as the stone was laid on the sepulcher, so there is a stone of unbelief upon thy stupid heart. Perhaps I was laying in that state, not four days, but many years, stinking in God's nostrils, and what is still more affecting, thou art as unable to raise thyself out of thy loathsome dead state, to a life of righteousness and true holiness, as ever Lazarus was, to raise himself from that cave in which he so long lay. Thou mayest try the power of thy own boasted free will, and the force and energy of moral persuasion and rational argument, but all thy efforts exerted will with ever so much vigor will prove fruitless and abortive till that same Jesus who said, take away the stone and cried, Lazarus, come forth, also quickens you. Just as Jesus gave Lazarus ears to hear, strength to move, breath to live, and the will to obey, God acted while we were spiritually dead. When we were helpless to save ourselves, he showed us mercy. When we were under God's wrath, he showed us his love. When we deserved his judgment, he showed us grace. For some reason, unbeknown to us, but rooted in his nature, God gave himself to us, acted to rescue us, even though we didn't deserve it. That is what grace is, undeserved favor. So instead of wrath that you and I deserve, we receive grace. Instead of judgment, we receive love. Romans 5 reads, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall Shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? Dear friends, Christianity isn't about becoming a nicer person. It's not about starting a new religious routine. It's about becoming a new creation, about being made alive by God. And in the gospel Jesus, he said as much in John chapter 3. And there we, we read how a religious man came, named Nicodemus came to him at night and to ask him some spiritual questions. Nicodemus, he knew a lot about religious things, but he had not been made alive, and so Jesus told them that unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Of course, Jesus didn't mean that someone had to somehow re-enter their mother's womb, but instead he was speaking of spiritual birth. He needed spiritual life to be born of the Spirit. Without it, there was no life, only death. Well, That is exactly what the Apostle Paul was getting at when he writes in our passage that God raised us up with Christ. Paul, he's connecting Jesus' resurrection, his return from the dead, physically, to us being raised spiritually. Over in Colossians, he put it this way. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us of all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal limit, legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You see, in Paul's mind, Christ's death and resurrection were not merely events that helped us, but events that we were included in. In essence, Paul is saying that in some way when God raised Jesus from the dead, using that same power, he also brought to life your dead spiritual corpse. Truthfully, Having done that, there is there nothing more gracious, more kind, more loving, and more than we don't deserve that he could have done. And yet, Paul here then goes on to tell us that God went even further than that. Telling us that as amazing as God giving his life was, that God also seated, with, seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. You See, it's just that since we're joined to Christ, we're, we're raised with Christ, since we're made alive in Christ, since we're found in him, where he is, we are. And since Jesus is seated in the heavenly places, in some ways we are too. And Paul, he's not just thinking of the future. No, instead, Paul tells the Ephesians that God raised them from the dead to life with Christ in the past. And that he's already seated them, seated them, past tense, in the heavenly realms with Jesus. They are seated with Christ while they're alive. In other words, they have access to his power now. That same power we talked about last week. A power to overcome temptation and face persecution and be conquerors don't miss it. God didn't have to save you. He didn't have to appease his wrath or take your punishment and judgment on himself. And he certainly didn't have to make you alive in Christ, join you to him, and seat you with him in the heavenly realms. But while he didn't have to do that, he chose to, just to show the immeasurable riches of his grace, a grace that will not end, but will stretch into eternity. In fact, as one author put it, In some regards, God, in an amazing way, makes us a trophy of his grace. I can hear someone say, okay, Chad, I get that. That's God's part, but, but what about the part I played? I mean, I distinctively remember putting my faith in him. And in some regards, you did. In fact, Paul even mentions faith here, telling us that we are saved by grace through faith, making faith the way we receive that grace. And Paul, he had a specific thing in mind when he used that word faith. For him, faith, it involved believing the right things, believing that the gospel was true, understanding that we were dead and that God reached out to save us. But it was more than that, more than just believing a set of doctrine, it involved our heart response to it. John Calvin put it this way, it now remains to pour into the heart what the mind has absorbed. For the word of God is not received by faith if it flits about in the top of the brain, but when it takes root in the depths of the heart. And faith, it also involves a commitment to trust God. Well, Paul tells us that that kind of faith is the way we receive grace, the way we become in Christ. But here's the thing: well, that is our part. Before you pat yourself on the back for your faith, you need to know that Paul immediately goes on to say that this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. And that this, Paul is referring to, is all of salvation: God's grace, his kindness towards us, and yes, even the faith that he gives us. It's all a gift. Friend, salvation is not a transaction in which God provides grace and we provide faith. No, it's all by grace. We were dead. And yet, by his grace, he gives us faith and life and seats us with Christ. Don't miss it. Paul's point in this passage is that salvation is only because God acted and showed grace. Sadly, we don't often tend to see the things that way, do we? It's just that that idea of grace, it's kind of foreign to us. Today, nothing's free and everything seems to come with a cost. In fact, when something is free, we, we think it sounds too good to be true. We wonder what the catch is. We think we have to earn it. Still others, they're reluctant to see themselves as needing grace, as totally dead. But here Paul is clear that there's no other way to eternal life, no other way to salvation, but by God's grace. Well, having told us why we need to be saved and how we are to saved, Paul then closes this section by telling us the results of our salvation which is the last thing I want you to notice today, that in Christ we are God's workmanship prepared to do good works, that those that are in Christ are God's workmanship and are prepared to do good works. Look at verse 10 with me, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And probably tells us that we're his workmanship. That word workmanship it is a word that was used to refer to art, such as like a statue or a song, architecture, a painting, or even a poem. It's used only one other time in the entire New Testament, and that time it refers to creation itself. In other words, what well, well, God made the heavens and the earth, the cosmos, Paul is telling us here that as wonderful as all that is, as amazing as the galaxy is, it is not his masterwork. No, his masterpieces are those who are in Christ. If you're saved today, you are his masterpiece. His masterpiece was made when he raised you and made you a new creation in him. Well, just as Psalm 19 tells us, that just as the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim his handiwork, as God's workmanship, you too were made to declare God's glory. In other words, people should be able to look at us, see our works, and say, that is a work of God. They should see it in how we live, and it should point them to God simply because Paul tells us we were created for good works. Martin Luther, the great reformer, once said, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith, and it is impossible for it not to do good works incessantly. It does not ask whether there are good works to do, but before the question rises, it has already done them and is always at the doing of them. You see, well, we're not saved by good works, we are saved for good works. The reformers used to say that faith, it is faith alone that justifies, but faith that justifies can never be alone. We're not saved by faith plus works, but by a faith that does work. Elsewhere, Paul, he, he prayed that, the, that those in Thessalonica might, that Jesus might comfort their heart and establish them in every good word and work. In Colossians, Paul prayed that his readers might buy, bear fruit in every good work. And in Galatians, he reminds us that the true and living faith is to work itself out in love. And Paul wasn't the first to suggest it. Oh, go through the Gospels. And that reveals that while Jesus constantly taught that salvation would be found in his death on, his cro- on the cross alone, he also said things like, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? The one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed, and it was, destruction was complete. Elsewhere, James would say, in his book, that faith without works is dead. It isn't life-giving. It isn't grace-bearing because new life will show. Just as a baby when they're born, breathes. And breath is a sign of life. A person born of God will do good works. Good works is a sign of spiritual life. Sadly, for many in the church, while change is desirable with faith, it just isn't seen as necessary today. We even tell people they just need to to pray the right prayer and heaven is theirs. We we focus on the not-by-works part of this passage, and yet true saving faith is more than praying a prayer or filling out a commitment card or walking an aisle. It is only found in Christ, only obtained when God makes you into a new creation and drastically changes your life, alters your direction, transforms your outlook, and refocuses your actions. Sadly, as a result of what we teach sometimes, What often passes for faith in churches today simply isn't worth having because it doesn't save. It just doesn't involve any deep commitment or change. And because of that, it's nothing but a false and groundless hope. Somehow we seem to miss that if we are in Christ, our old nature, our sin nature died with him. And we were raised to life with him. And that should affect how we live. It should result in good works. That doesn't mean we'll be perfect. But it said we should be means we should be progressively reflecting the masterpiece he has made us into. Over in Romans 6 it reads, For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we've died with Christ, we believe we also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let sin therefore, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Dear friends, if you're in Christ today, you've been raised to a new existence. You've been joined to Christ and no one who's been made made alive with Christ can ever be the same. Your life is to be shaped by your relationship with him and your actions should flow out of the new creation you are. In fact, so much so that Paul can confidently say that God in his sovereignty had good deeds in mind when he chose to save you. Good deeds that he planned in eternity past that you should walk in. Note that some of those good deeds are spelled out in his word. You and I were to be ambassadors wherever we are, we to share our faith, we're to represent him, look after the less fortunate widows and orphans, keep ourselves unpolluted from the world, imitate Christ, we're to grow in grace and live righteous lives. and that's just scratching the surface of what the Bible tells us we are created to do. Paul, he's clear that God made you his master's to be peace so you would do these things. He created you for these good works. But more than that, more than that, I believe Paul is saying here that God has given each of us, An eternally designed job description shaped to us, chosen for us by God before time. A job description that includes the tasks you are to do and the places you are to serve. A job description that God has uniquely designed and equipped you for. For me, that means I've been called to be a pastor, and for now, to Pastor FBC. It means that since God has entrusted me with kids, that he's given me the job to represent his fatherhood well, parent well, raise my kids in accordance with his word. It means that in... I'm in Coburg and I'm here to be his ambassador and I'm in Canada to represent him. For you, it may be some other things. But make no mistake, if you are saved, you are God's masterpiece and he created you. He fashioned you, not just to look pretty, but to do certain things for his glory. In his sovereignty, he planned them out in eternity past. He had a special place for you. The only question is, do you know what those things are? And if you do, are you doing them? Here in Ephesians 2, Paul lays out for us the reasons we need to be saved, how we were saved, how God acted to save us, and that he saved us for a purpose. I don't really know where you're at today, but perhaps you're here or you're watching online and you're struggling. You don't seem to have hope, and yet you're not really ready to accept this dead, spiritually dead thing that I've been talking about. So I pray that God may open your eyes to see how far you are from him how powerless you are to save yourself, and how your only hope is to throw yourself on his grace and put your faith in him. If that is you, why not? If nothing else, ask him today to reveal himself to you and start to truly consider what he's saying in his word. So I'm sure there's others here that have accepted that fact. They they have heard that they were dead in their sins before. They've heard it hundreds of times. They believe it. They've even put their faith in him. And yet, sadly, if they were honest, their faith really hasn't resulted in actions, Their lives, they don't really look like the new life that Jesus spoke of or have resulted in the good works that Paul writes of. Somehow they have missed that being made in Christ changes your nature. It changes who you are and affects how you live. Well, if that is you, I beg you to take a close look at your faith today and ask yourself, is my faith the kind of faith James spoke of? A faith that doesn't save? And if the answer to that is yes, then Put real, true, saving faith in Jesus today. Come to truly know Christ, receive God's gift, and enter into a true relationship with him. Or maybe you're here and you are growing in your faith. And what God wants you to take away from this passage today is that you are his workmanship, his prized creation. And so you should stop looking at yourself as something second-rate and start to see yourself as God sees you. Perhaps God, he simply wants to remind you that you are his workmanship, and he has created you to do certain things, predetermined that you should walk in them. And so you ought not only to know what they are, but be, be about doing them. Still even more than that, if you aren't sure what they are, I believe that God is likely calling you today to commit to finding out, to commit to diving into his word, to discover the deeds he has for all of us to do, and to go to him and ask him to reveal the specific plans he has for you, and then to get busy doing them. But you know, regardless of which one you are today, whatever you do, don't miss Paul's point here. When we, when you were hopeless and dead, God in his mercy gave you life. And don't forget to praise God for it. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for a passage that so clearly tells us how desperately we needed your help. And left to our own, we were dead and destined for destruction. And I thank you that you wouldn't stay out of the picture, that you came to give us life, and not just life, but to see this with Christ in the heavenly as your sons and a purpose that you designed us for. In Jesus' name, amen.